Welcome to the Never Settle Podcast. My name is Mel Clark and I am passionate about helping people realise that settling for second best is no longer an option and that everyone deserves to live the life they truly desire. Today's guest is the wonderful Dave Gold and I can honestly say I've never met a person like Dave. Um, he was an attorney, and he's an author, he's an entrepreneur, he's now a transformational mentor and energy master. Um, but Dave has led a really interesting life. He was always on this quest for spirituality, so much so that he actually became celibate for a number of years and followed um, a guru who eventually um, basically told Dave to move on and do something else with his life and um, he actually got married I think it was the age of 47 it was late 40s anyway and um, ended up adopting a beautiful baby girl who is now 20 years old but the marriage didn't last so the whole conversation with Dave is is um, basically about how his life is you know um, weaved and wound and how he met the love of his life which was seven eight years ago the wonderful Julie and her spirituality and her mediumship he got to speak to his father who he lost when he was only 19 years old so it's a real fascinating interview and Dave is um as I say he's just very different and uh, I really really enjoyed this uh, this conversation with Dave and actually um, I'm pretty sure Dave's going to be interviewing me um on this podcast sorry my cat has just come in and he's trying to get onto my lap so yes dave is going to be interviewing me soon so i'm going to look forward to that conversation and um as always guys wherever you are taking your walk in the car sitting back enjoying a drink enjoy this conversation i know you will well hello lovely listeners today i have the real pleasure of speaking with dave gold dave has been very patiently waiting to speak to me it's been a few months, bless him. Um, Dave uh, is or was an attorney. He's an author, an entrepreneur. He's also a transformational mentor and an energy master who has spent his life in the intersections of business, spirituality, and now finally love. Um, I did see on uh, some of Dave's information that he's with the love of his life now, and I think it's been about seven or so years. Um, if that's wrong, Dave will correct me. He built a massively successful law practice um, while he was living celibate in a cabin. This this surprised me. Alongside his spiritual guru, um, Richard Rose. And then he later sold his interest in the practice to devote himself full time to writing Rose's biography after the absolute. Since then, Dave has founded and sold businesses and he's discovered an unimaginable love and helped countless em- empathic empathetic, I can never say that word, entrepreneurs and influences experience ease, affluence, significance by aligning them with both their deepest passions and their highest callings. And it says here that you're 70, Dave. Is that still correct? <laughs> that, that changes day by day, but I'm well, still... Well, I know, yeah. <laughs> um, so welcome, Dave. He, by the way, the visual here, Dave is sitting in this beautiful, big, green, lush garden and the sun is shining, looking very, very chilled. Thank you. With, with two dogs at my feet. I will come more and more into the sunlight, which will be a metaphor for our conversation here today as, as the sun starts peeking over the roof. And, Excellent. And I, gotta say, I listened to that and I said, I, I'd like to meet that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am meeting this guy. 
sounds like he's had a hell of a life. And, 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 I, and I think, well, you know, when I was a lawyer, we said, you know, it doesn't hurt to have that facts on your side. And, and everything you said was actually true. So, but no, I just got to say, you and I were in the, you know, in the birds, those are real birds. Those aren't piped in birds. But, um, that when, as soon as when we were having a conversation, you said we should hit record is because you, my dear, are just such a beautiful human being. And, and I can just see this life that you've lived, which has not been, you know, easy, but it's just crafted you into this really unique, empathetic, but very down to earth, you know, very real. I just feel like you're very real and you're, you don't have time for bullshit. And <laughs> you don't attract people who do. And so I just feel like I've met an old friend here and which is evidenced by the fact that I have no idea what's coming out of my mouth next, except that I'm just really glad to see you and to know you're around. And, and the question that I had asked you when you said, geez, we, we shouldn't leave, we say in the States, don't leave it on the practice field, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> is I asked you what your superpower was that life has kind of crafted you to be able to give that no one else could give it the way that you have to give it. And I'll, I'm asking that question, but also if in fact you ever get around to interviewing, you know, we decide we want to do that. That's the question that I really, that that's the question I think life is asking each of us is what, if you, if you can depersonalize it and take the story away from what you've created and what you believe you're doing and who you believe you are with all the limitations and all the regrets, then what you're left with is, holy cow, look how life, just like I listened to when you were talking about me, I thought, wow, look what life's deposited me. So anyway, enough, enough preamble back to you. What, what is it that life has crafted you into giving that no one else can give exactly the way you give it? Um, I think I've always been uh, a listener ever since I was a kid. So I was the one that, um, I mean, a friend of mine a couple of years ago said, your silence is deafening. You know, mm. the way, the way you sit and, and are present for people and you actively listen. Um, and that's been something that's been with me since I was really, really young. And <clears throat> as a result of that, People naturally gravitated to me to talk their problems through, take advice, guidance, anything like that. And I was actually going to go into being a psychologist when I left university, but I talked myself out of it. And I think it was imposter syndrome, too young. What the hell did I know? You know, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, it's come back over the last couple of years. Well, it's never really gone away, but I think over the last sort of five years or so, the coaching thing was, was in me. But again, I didn't have the belief to do it and then a couple of years ago the universe got me made redundant and and so I had a kick up the ass because 24 hours later I was on a webinar being being pitched what I do now and um so I was like okay it's time to do it then um so so my super gift is is the way that I just sit and, and actively listen for people but also very spiritual and the journey that I've had where I've settled a lot in relationships, uh, career, etc. Um, I'm, you know, a few steps ahead of people that are still in that situation and therefore I can help them if they really want to, I can help them move out of that. You know, one of the things I've, I've noted, I say, sometimes I feel like I'm just a scout, you know, like I'm walking side by side with my, I don't want to call my clients, my part, yeah. my collaborators, my collaborators. And then every now and then I'll rush out ahead a little bit just to see what's up ahead, come back, bring, bring it to them. But I, I think one of the things that I sense about you as well, and I'm actually getting somewhat, I want to say emotional about it, is that you see everyone as equals. 
And I think that is such a rare talent that someone could be in a position of, I wouldn't call it authority, but respect, you know, where people respect and, and defer a bit, but still realize that you're just there as equals with these people. And that frees everybody up. It just frees them up to be fully themselves and not to defer to you. You know, it's something we you talk about this, this beautiful love that descended upon me and changed, you know, I thought my life was like some spiritual hero's journey or some rags to riches success story. And son of a bitch. It's a love story. Go figure. You know? <laughs> who, who knew? But one of the things that became clear in our, in our relationship with, with some vertical guidance, which may be another podcast, maybe different, but was that, that we were equals. We were completely equals. And then I realized that there's, there's, that doesn't mean, I mean, I'm better at making money than Julie and Julie's much better at raising kids than me, you know, but so there's deference, you know, when you're in this kind of, and this, I think this is a beautiful thing about collaborative, really collaborative relationships is there's deference. You know, there's things that I know that I would, you know, that you would, that you bring to me to just fix everything else, but there's no, there's no hierarchy. Yeah. Hierarchy just frees everyone up to be, you know, more fully themselves and and then i again the, one of the beauties is, is is in my life and i guess you call it my line of work although i don't like to call it work is i get to meet people who are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing and exactly the form they're supposed to be doing it which is a number of people but then the rare people are the ones that realize realize that and aren't delaying oh my god i gotta wait till this oh my god you know like i i can't i can't be the perfect husband i still leave the toilet seat up and until I but don't leave the toilet seat up, I'm not going to be the perfect husband. So I'm waiting for that moment instead of saying, wow, I am this phenomenal work in progress. And, you know, when you talked about the imposter syndrome, I think one of the, the hardest things, one of the hardest things for me and people that I deal with, people, empaths, you know, people of heart, is to just allow the fullness and the beauty of who we are to unfold without worrying we're going to get a big fat head about it. I mean, I'm not worried about it anymore. I'm yeah. not worried that I'm going to get, because I just love, you know, and I think when you, when you literally come from a point of love, then that will, you know, if you need humbling, you know, any more than life humble, which I don't think I need any gratuitous humbling. You know, I think life has humbled you and I enough and probably most of your listeners enough. But once you've, once, once you're there, then you could just say, Wow. Like I was listening to that, you know, what you just said about me. I thought, wow, what a life. Mm. And I don't say that because it makes me better than anyone else. I just say that with true gratitude for who I've, who I've discovered myself to be. You know, you, you mentioned the spiritual part of it. And I'm just going to, you know, we're having a conversation. Yeah, I was going to say, Dave, I'm, I'm intrigued, right? Because obviously you've, you've, You've lived um, an unusual life in terms of the spiritual celibacy, all of that. And you were an attorney, right? Which doesn't seem to marry up whatsoever um, in, mo in most people's thoughts. I was a trial lawyer. I wasn't one of these guys sat behind a desk and looked over documents. I was in the, I was in the courtroom going toe to toe with yeah. some worst people with the worst clients you can imagine. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I'd love to know just a little bit about, you know, little Dave. And, and how you ended up becoming the, you know, the business owner, the attorney, and, but what got you to um, being that celibate, um, you know, with your guru? And just, just a quick one before I forget, I'm, I'm assuming you probably have. Have you read The Surrender Experiment? 
No, I have not. Oh, well, well if you're a reader, you should read it because it just reminds me of that. <laughs> so let me start with the surrender piece. So first of all, I always remind myself to answer a question as if it was the first time I've heard it. So whatever's going to come out about, you know, it's going to be how I ended up here to the extent there's causation or correlation or whatever. But I, I will tell you just to start where you, where you ended is my life now is a experiment and a study in surrender. Truly. Yeah. And I don't know how to do this. I've been a pusher. I've been proactive, even with, with my spirituality. I've always been the one I started the law firm. I co-founded the company I've done, you know, I'm the, you know, there's a, I, I forgot, I, I for, we could spend so long, I forgot we had this podcast and there's a business meeting going with my partners right now. And normally I'm the one who's going to be leading that, you know, leading that kind of thing. So, so now I've, I've realized, and I'll, I'll get to answer your question that I feel inspired to go with this direction is that I've just realized that every time I'm pushing, I'm pushing something away. Mm. So then the experiment, the surrender experiment, okay, that's true that life and Julie, you know, I keep going up because our bedroom, our bedroom's up there. So I'm going to really point up to the, to the bedroom is she was better than I could have ever imagined. So if you, if you start from the premise and life has proven itself that it wants what you want, except better, mm. everything we want resides in the unknown. Look at your life. Look at your life. You never could dream, you know, we used to say, and again, forgive my French, you can't make this shit up. You yeah. can't even dream this stuff up. So if everything you want is in the unknown and life wants what you want, except better, then what are you doing? You know, what's yours to do? What is yours to do? So to leave the space or whatever the, you know, whatever the, the metaphors or the, how you articulate it, to leave space for that to come to you. But then meanwhile, I'm, I've got a business to run. I've got, you know, bills to pay. I've got people dependent, seemingly dependent upon me. So my surrender experiment, we could talk more about this later, is how does one live a life where one is surrendered and accepting what comes without sitting in a cave and waiting for someone to fill up your begging bowl? So, all right. So we'll bookmark that one because that, like, that sounds like fertile territory for <laughs> podcast discussion. And I don't know. The answer is, the answer is I, I was, it's funny. I was with uh, some clients, a couple of guys that have a very successful company that I work with. And, and I, something happened in, in my business that I thought, oh, you know, I've, I, I wouldn't pitch them, but there's an opportunity. So I, I, I went to those guys to, to speak with them. And then, you know, they were kind of like, well, where have you been since two years? You know, we worked together. And I gave this great summary. And then I just said, I stopped myself and said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I can talk a good game. I don't know. I honestly don't know what I'm doing any more than I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to answer that question that you asked me. I don't know. And that, you know, talk about a surrendered experiment. And okay, so how, the, how did I end up? How I can only give you data points and then we can draw any conclusions we want about correlation. I was a nice Jewish boy. My father was a, a clergyman with, we call it cantor. He was a singer in the Jewish faith. And, and we had a very, you know, depression era kind of father. And so scarcity mentality. Mm. And my brothers were both doctors and I was going to be, I would have, I would have been a doctor had I had the patience for it. 
you know, that's what he wanted. In fact, when I told my dad I was going to become a lawyer, he was so disappointed. <laughs> I was I was going to be the failure in the family. And I had, I think, traditional ideas. I mean, I've always had, let's put it this way, something Julie and I realized, we're 15 years apart, almost in age. Um, when I was, both of us, of course, not knowing each other. And when I had this experience, she wasn't even, she had yet to come on, you know, come onto the earth. As I dreamed of a great love, I, I remember being a little kid just thinking, I want, I, I just dreamed there would be a great love. So I have to put that into the picture that that drove me and that drove me nuts. I, I hungered so deeply for that love. Do you know and, where that came from? Ah, that's a mystery. I mean, I, I, can, I can put some, you know, my dog is coming. When I talk about a great love, my retreat. Yeah, comes. here he comes. <laughs> um, that when I talk about a great love, I mean, part of my parents modeled it for me. They had one. Oh, they had a, they had a, I just remember my parents just stopping in the middle of the day and just seeing them embrace and kiss. And, and I'm an empath, and as, as you are, and I'm sure many of your listeners are. So I don't know mysteriously where that came from. I can tell you that for, you know, as, an, as, you know, as, a, as a high strung, oversexed, manipulative, insecure adolescence, you know, it doesn't necessarily work out well for you or the others that bring in, you know, bring into your life, you know, looking kind of the wrong places. And, and so at the lowest point of, of, of my, I was, I was 19, I guess, yeah, I was 19 years old. I was in college. My high school girlfriend, you know, I adored, but treated like shit, dumped me and a few things happened. And then I, th I remember saying that the only, the only way my life could get any worse was if one of my parents died and my father just had a massive heart attack and died. He was 50. I was 19. And I went into a deep depression and, um, and nothing could bring me, you know, nothing. I was in college. Nothing could really bring me out of it. And then when I, when I graduated college, I came back to, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where my, I was my, my, where I grew up. And my mother, my two brothers were already on their medical careers and my sister was young. And it was one of us, we knew one of us needed to come back and, and, and be around my mom. So I moved in with my mom and went to law school, I went to law school. And I met the man who became my spiritual teacher. Uh, I accepted as my spiritual teacher. I wasn't looking, I wasn't a spiritual guy. You know, that wasn't, I hadn't, you know, other than take an acid trip and maybe read, you know, read a little bit of Ram Dass or something, you know, that was about the extent of my spirituality. And um, I think the statute of limitations has passed on any drug usages I would talk about at this point. But anyway, I, and, and I got an immediate taste of, of a transcendence of all my unhappiness and all my craziness. He just gave me an, an instantaneous transmission of that. And it just, it, it, it flipped everything on its ears. And I knew, and, and in fact, interestingly enough, I went, that he had a little, he had an intensive down at his farm in West Virginia, just about an hour south of where, where I was going to school and living with my mom. Is I, I went out on the back portion of his farm and I, it was a tent, somebody left a tent there and I stayed for five days by myself in that tent with nothing. You know, it's my first isolation, in which I used to take longer ones. But I knew that until I could be totally by myself and be comfortable in my own skin with who I was, that nothing externally could create that experience. I forgot, you know, it's funny, I forgot about, it. I haven't told that story in a while, but that was formative. I knew it was internal. And then interesting going back, tying it into the, and this is one of the nice things about my trial experience. I can usually run a story back to the timeline. 
is, is I decided, oh, I'm going to transcend this, this, this desire for love. I, you know, I'm never going to have it. So let's just spiritually bypass it. And, and, you know, and I happened to get a teacher who demanded celibacy or at least of his more poor students and, and took that on and not, it's not an experiment that I would, I'm, I'm grateful that I ran it. I wouldn't recommend it for anybody necessarily, unless you feel called to it or whatever. But the point is, I thought that I would transcend human love and I would do these 30 day isolations and halfway through them, I would, I would experience that kind of bliss that was trans the transcendent kind of bliss. I'd say, you know, this is the pearl without price. No human being could possibly. And then, you know, it's interesting. No, we, we, I just thought of this again. Nice thing about not having a story to we just weren't, we just, you know, determined story is I would at the same time, I feel such love for the people that were in my life for my, you know, I didn't have a love of, I didn't have a family, but I just felt love for my partners. I felt love for my niece. I felt love for, you know, some of my clients. So I was transcending human love, but it was bringing me in something, you know, much more deeply. And I wanted to quit when I first met my teacher at Backtrack. I wanted to quit when I got this taste of transcendence. I said, I'm going to quit law school. And my teacher said, you're not meant to be a wood shopping monk. And this is yours and my destiny too. You know, who knows how many hundreds or how many generations ago, people like us would be in a cave, right? And we'd have our experience and then we'd sit there and, and whatever would happen. And that's not, that's not what's called for in this moment. You know, it's like, the, the, the who song you know love's not for keeping it this isn't for, this isn't for me whatever experiences i might have it's not for me so i always had this dual this dual thing like the, the spiritual you know what we what i then called spirituality and now i just call life and and business and i was really good at you know i was really good at business i don't know how good i was at spirits kind, of, kind of hard to get the same metrics as as opposed to a you know a bank account which is pretty objective so anyway that that was my that's kind of how I got on this dual path and uh, fast forward to um, I had a when I when I reached God how old was I when I got I was forty seven you know I I had kind of run my spiritual course I mean my, I felt like I run my spiritual course certainly the celibate course my body didn't put up with that anymore and um, and I think it was time to get married and I got married and adopted a daughter and it was not you know it's interesting that you know again i'm, I'm rambling here but <clears throat> i want to hear your voice is um you know you look back at things you go what the hell why did i what was i thinking when i married you know i'm not casting aspersions it's like anybody could see it wasn't it wasn't a good match i didn't i didn't have this there wasn't a love of my life and and i look back at the perfection of it, it the perfection i can't understand so, you know, I ran that court. I, uh, we adopted, uh, was able to adopt a newborn, a beautiful daughter. She's now 20, 21 in a couple of weeks. And um, eventually that marriage ran its course. I had hooked up with a second spiritual teacher and I was very active involved, both as a student and as a board member and as a fundraiser, deeply invested. And I had my first and hopefully only colossal failure as a businessman. <laughs> I lost over a million bucks of my own money in a company, you know, trying to do some good. And I hit bottom, you know, it was, it's like a class, it's like the classic kind of dark night of the soul. And I, my marriage was over my spiritual, another, another fallen guru, um, you know, a, a failed, just a failure. And I happened to be in, on retreat in 
in Tuscany and and I had a you know, I don't I, 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 I used to be like to talk about it because I don't want to hold myself out as being some kind of spiritual avatar. But I had an immersion in consciousness. I, I finally, and, and interesting to talk about the surrender project is normally when I would get all these years, I, I get close to some kind of, you know, whatever experience and I would just crap my pants, you know, and I, my fingernails would be on the wall. And I, and I thought, oh my God, I spent my whole life praying for this and now it's here and I'm holding on. Yeah. And at this point, in this particular moment, my curiosity for what was was like a descent. My curiosity for what was at the bottom of the elevator was greater than my fear. And, and interestingly enough, it is such a beautiful metaphor for life because I've said with Julie, when I realized when Julie came into my life seven years ago, seven, eight years ago, that, that I loved, I was able to love my way past things I could never discipline my way past. So I could never summons the, the drive to just go through that fear of losing my ego or ego death. But I was just so infatuated and entranced by the love that awaited me that I was able to, to descend, descend into that. And, and to get enough of a taste that my question, I, I was no longer a seeker. You know, my, my great enlightened being, I don't know what the hell enlightenment being was, but at the time I, I said, this doesn't me measure up to other experiences I've read about. But there's a couple of things that came out of it. One, I knew that nothing that I had done in those 40, whatever years, you know, 30 or 40 years, I guess 40. Yeah. It brought me one inch closer to that. It was pure grace. It was pure grace. And all that spiritual effort was, was not causative, causal. But the other was I realized what a good man I, I had become through that life that I had lived. I was really surprised. I didn't expect to encounter the goodness of, of, of me in this human form. And there was one more thing, and then I'm going to stop talking for a little bit, is I looked for the, I said, whoa, this is, you know, this consciousness, it's big, you know, it's, it's this, is, this, is some, this is some big stuff. And I said, I, I looked for the limits of it, and I couldn't find the edges. And then looking for the edges, I knew, of, I knew of its infinite nature. And when Julie came into my life, I looked for the limits of our love, and I couldn't find it. And I knew of its infinite nature. And if you want to tie it together, you know, I'm, I'm getting tearing up just thinking about how grateful I am that I didn't become a guru. You know, I came from a lineage where you, you, you struggled, you experienced, then you taught. But I struggled, I experienced, and then I loved. And then it transformed into the love now that I can't get a scalpel between human and divine love. That they feel different. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, Yes, I know there's a different, as you know, there's a different transcendent quality. But in terms of valuation or saying this is where my love for Julie and my love for God or Julie's love for me or God's love for me begins or ends, I don't know. And I don't want to know. Well, we're all as one, right? Um, if that's what you believe. So there, should, there shouldn't be any separation anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I'm intrigued. How did Julie come into your life? And... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also intrigued about the 47 year old getting married to to the wrong person because you know I did that myself. Um, <laughs> and why did it take you to the ripe old age of 47 in this day and age? Obviously, people are getting married in their 20s and 30s or whatever. Um, were you forever the bachelor, or it was just your you were transcending in that divine space? Um, and when you came out of that, all of a sudden you wanted the norm. Is that what it was? 
I think I just go, I, I, you know, if I have to put human, if I have to put cause and effect to it, so let's see. Why the hell did I get married? <laughs> I think that I was, we, I, we, I, I had run my spiritual, I'd run the course of the, I, I tried, you know, I, my, my, in nine, in 90, after 20 years, my teacher, my then teacher threw me out and basically excommunicated me. And so I, I had to have that kind of, you know, expulsion from the womb for me to be able to actually leave him. And then I ended up in here in North Carolina and, um, and ended up starting a company, a, success, a company that turned out that was successful. And, and also we were running these spiritual groups for, for at the various campuses we, we have. Duke, for those listeners who are familiar with the United States, we have Duke, UNC, University of North Carolina, and NC State all in the area. So it's a hotbed of, of universities and we're running programs for students on all of those. And so I'm running, I'm living this double life again of running a software company during the day and doing these spiritual meetings at night. And meanwhile, I'm living in an ashram with, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm in my, let's see, I'll do the math. I'm in my 40s. And I'm living with, you know, college kids and it's great. You know, they, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, and I can, you know, I play basketball. I was young. I can still play basketball with them and hang with them. And, you know, but at the same time, it's somebody looking, what the hell am I doing? You know, this, this isn't sustainable. I, I, I'm, I'm too old to be celibate. I'm not. And so it's like, and then someone came into my life and I thought, oh, you, you know, I, I, I don't want to demean her because she played a beautiful role in my life. And she's been, a, you know, however, I think really I, I just had run the course. Someone came in and I thought, oh, okay, that'll do it. And in retrospect, we, we were meant to be the parents of our daughter. Yeah. We were meant to be the parents of our daughter. And she has been a tremendous source of my, my former wife has been a real source of me being able to not care what the hell anyone thinks about me. To just stop trying to be the pleaser stop trying to explain, oh no, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, to not have everybody applaud and give me a gold star. Because she's never going to come, she's not, you know, that's not hers to do. And because of that, I have, uh, you know, she's been there. The way that, you know, interestingly enough, what really tore that, finally tore that marriage apart was, that's, that's too dramatic, but, you know, what finally started to get the, the separation was, we, we, you know, my, my first wife was not quote spiritually oriented. We had a deal. She said, you know, you can do all your spiritual stuff you want to do. And that's great. And she was very patient with mine. Cause I was, I was yes, still pretty active, but she said her parent, her father had, had a stroke. They were elderly. And she said, we're going to take care of my parents when we need to. And so we did, we moved her parents into our home and that well-intentioned, you know, what could be more noble than taking care of your parents? We talked a little bit off, but you know, you know what that's like. Mm. And it was a disaster. And and none of my spirituality, none of my business acumen, none of my contacts could save what a pathologic situation that it was. And finally, I knew for the good of my daughter that you know, we had made a deal that she wasn't keeping. I don't think that if this actually started to affect our marriage and our daughter's health, and so we, I ended up insisting that they find other lodging <laughs> and that's how that ended up starting this company to help family caregivers which turned out to be this albatross but anyway um 
and so after after I just getting back fast forwarding with Julie is after I ran this after I hit bottom and ran this had this experience I came back to the states and I was done what am I going to do my company was over you know I put three years and all this money in it and I I I, I was I, I just scrambling to try to find another business didn't seem right you know it felt like forced it felt like I was coming from desperation it was inconsistent with the perfection that I had had experienced in, in, in Italy. And I wasn't a seeker anymore. I just wasn't a seeker. And I don't know, you know, if, if the movie, The Princess Bride is, is ubiquitous there is and <laughs> where it is here in the States, but it, at the end of the movie where the Spaniard says, I've been in the revenge business so long, I don't know now that I've killed the man that killed my father, I don't know what to do with myself. I've been a seeker so long, I didn't know what the hell to do with myself. And so I was kind of, floundering about and um and also interestingly enough i had been separated for years i couldn't get a goddamn date <laughs> yeah well, look i mean i'm not i'm not a looker but i'm a package you know i, I there, there's every as my one of my cousins said every pot has a lid <laughs> and and i i would go out and people would you know i mean i women seemed to be interested or people you know whatever and then I'd follow up and it was like someone on the internet. I said, did someone post something on the internet that I'm some kind of child molester or, you know, what the hell's going on that no one will. And of course I didn't know that Julie had thrown the cloak of invisibility over me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very powerful. She's not, she's not, she's like you. She's not one to be trifled. I wouldn't want to trifle with you and she's not one to be trifled with. Um, but did you want to know the story or where do you want to go? Mm, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Jeez. Okay, do you want the um, crazy ass story? Or do you want the love, the, the, the sanitized story? Uh, well, I would love, I would love both, to be honest. If, if they can, <laughs> if they can merge. Okay, I'll merge them. I'll, I'll try to be relatively quick about it. <laughs> it's, but this is a story we've just started to tell. So, when when I came back from Italy and nothing was working and everything seemed to be blocked, and I had worked with a with an intuitive before, I had some very very serious health issues that he had helped remedy for me. And I reached out to him again and he said, you know, your issues are all around your father. He said, it's and my dad at this point had been dead for, you know, he died in 1971 and this is 94. I mean, 2000 and 2014. So you can do the math. Mm. And, and so we started to do some, some work with dream Mandela's and whatnot. And, and what started to happen is my father, who I viewed as because at the time of his death was very demanding and, and he was a perfectionist and I would never measure up. That's the view I've had of him and started to working with him. It started to shift and I could feel more of a collaborative kind of thing. So meanwhile, Julie was my, my daughter was going to, I had moved my daughter to a Waldorf school, a private school here where I lived and I was welcoming new families and Julie was one of the new families coming in. And I get on the phone. I'm sure you know it's like you and me. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't ever talk about the weather. <laughs> you and me. We were. You know. Boom. We're just going deep. And and I'm on the phone with with this with this woman. Just well, one of four people on a spreadsheet. And I start talking to her. And and she's not talking about the weather either. And when I went deep, she went deep. And when I went, she went deeper. And I thought, son of a bitch. You know, wonder when one of us is going to back off. And neither one of us did. And this is especially true with people, you know, I, I say of the opposite sex and I realize I have to amend that when there's a potential romantic nature, you know, even if it's way out there, because 
you know, think, oh, wait, wait, we're talking about those intimate parts of our life. I wonder if, you know, I hope he or she doesn't misinterpret it. And we never did. And I got off the phone so impressed. And I looked, I looked her up online. I thought, oh, she's cute. <laughs> and her, she had told me she had just separated from her. She, had, she and, her, and her husband had separated. And she told me that, which she hadn't told, you know, even her family, I think, at that point. And she said she heard a voice that said, I wonder what kind of gold, because I'm Dave Gold, I wonder what kind of gold he's going to bring into my life. Now, she never dreamed that was going to be that romantic. <laughs> Both of us had an inkling. And then we met a couple months, a month or so later when she came to the area for a visit. There was no chemistry, zero. Oh, wow. I mean, and I, that was it. So we kind of settled in to be spiritual friends. So she and I are going out, and this is great, man. Not this, you're, you're getting the full story, my dear. She and I go out to dinner, friends as friends. You know, and because I was she, I was helping her. She had some legal stuff going on, just in, and I'm I'm a good problem solver, and I was helping her as as I would any spiritual, you know, like my, my any friend, someone new to the area, didn't know anybody. And so we're out to dinner, and I mentioned my father, and I said, my father is, um, you know, I told him how demanding he was, and she looks at me and she said, this doesn't happen often, but it happens. She said. But your father's, are you aware your father's standing over your right shoulder? And he's nothing like you said he is. And Mel, I knew that capital K knowing it was the truth. Wow. And I felt, you know, the old Beatles song, boy, you're going to carry that weight. The weight lifted. Wow. And I walked out a, a free man. And then we hadn't seen each other for a bit, you know, and I, I don't know what to make of that. And I'm sitting and I'm, I'm getting ready to start a new business and I'm and actually writing the proposal to go in with this. And all of a sudden I get it. I see, I get some text from Julie. And, and then I get a phone call. What I don't know is Julie is at a coffee shop and her right eye starts to twitch. This is, you can't make this shit up. Like I said, her right eye starts to twitch. And, and my father comes in and the next, for the next two hours, she downloads my father. Wow. And not and just in this beautiful poetic way. And and it was the beginning of the transformation of the man you see in front of me, in front of you rather, is he just sees perfection, which is what I do. I look at you. As soon as I say I see perfection. I, do, I only see I don't see Mel, I don't see all the you know, all the things that you the bill of particulars you have against yourself of why you're no goddamn good. I just see, and that's that's what he saw. And he knew, first of all. My father knew things about me that no one else knew, not even my family members knew. You know, so there was no question about that. But it was this beautiful poetic partnership between my wife, my now wife's, you know, her love of words and her poetic nature and her spiritual nature. And my father, who in one sense is this differentiated being, remembers what it's like to be Dave's dad, but is also so far transcendent. So for the next few weeks, I'm just dancing with this. You know, I call her up anytime, you know, and, and we have this, she's bringing my father in and, and I don't know the rules, you know, I'm saying, what the hell are the rules here? Can I ask him this? Can I ask him that? I don't know. Screw <laughs> this up, you know, and, and then, but we're still, it's still friendship. It's pure. It's still totally, she's the perfect person. So then I'm out in Colorado. I'm at a board, board of directors meeting and Denver happens to be an area where, she, where Julie has some, she worked in spiritual hospice there, which is 
where she, you know, kind of really, okay. I want to say, own her skills or discover her skills, yeah. get her people over, over and back. And I'm on the phone with her before one of the meetings and talking about, and suddenly something's opening up. I love to tell this story. Thank you for letting me tell this story. Yeah. Something, something opens up and, and I'm really happy. And she's really happy. And I have to go. And when I go, I don't want to hang up the phone. And so like for that whole day, I'm supposed to be in board meetings, looking at spreadsheets. And I'm like, you know, some kid in high school has got porn, you know, he's got a geography book. It's not porn. I'm on the phone, you know, I'm texting her, I'm emailing her and I'm doing, and I can't, and every minute that I'm going, I'm on the phone with her and, and something starts to emerge. And I don't know what it is, except I'm happy and I can't be apart from her. And I'm still thinking, wait a minute you know, we're just friends. Don't, don't screw this. You know, you got the Oracle bringing your dad, don't mess this up. Make him <laughs> yeah. It's a high risk strategy, you know, take, <laughs> take the one, you know, <laughs> so, so, um, but by the evening, it was unmistakable that something had emerged between us. And I was so happy, Mel. And it wasn't the happiness, you know, we know, like when, oh my God, I got a love, of, you know, oh, I'm, I'm in love now. It was happiness without an object. It wasn't, it was just this ecstasy of what had been, had had been now, you know, she said our love was the door. What we didn't fall in love. We opened the door and our love was revealed. And the next day, this also went on, you know, I was flying back the next day, but every minute together and just this incredible ecstasy between us and this love. And at this point it was unmistakable. We didn't declare it. It still wasn't meant to be declared, but it was meant to be acknowledged. Mm. We knew what we knew. And then here's where, here's where men are such idiots. Here's, here's where I just did the, you know, I just did the, something so it's hilarious now, but at the time, so I'm in the, I'm in the, we're in the throes of our love and it's just, un, un, but then I got, it's time to get on the airplane. And it, you put that phone away. I'm throwing you off the airplane. So I'm, I break the, I break it. And that gives my, my insecure, little self chances to start thinking and to overwhelm my heart. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what am I doing? This can't, you know, and by the time I got off the plane, I was back to, Oh, Dave, you know, you, you're not, this can't be, you know, this isn't it. And, and I went into a corner and fortunately, Julie just went in there and dragged me out and slapped me around, you know, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, she would have none of it. She saw it coming, but it, it reminded me, you know, and I said, what, what the transformation Julie had is my, my love for her, is, my love's greater than my fear. My love for her is, overwhelms my fear. And that was a time when my fear overwhelmed my love and I got to experience what it's like. No, 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 no. You, let, you just let the love overwhelm the fear. And then it became clear as my father came in that Julie was the gift. Mm. Julie, Julie, he said, Julie was the deepest dream I didn't even know I was dreaming. Yeah. And that, isn't that what I said earlier about life yeah. wanting what we want for us to accept better? And, um, and yeah, and so that's, I can, you know, get into it, but that's how we met. And that's been the foundation of, of our relationship. And, and if Julie was sat where you're sat now, how would she describe it? Oh, I, I if you had, you know, you, let's do another, seriously, let's do another podcast. Let's not wait three months no. <laughs> and, and have your listeners hang on the edges of their seats. And I, cause I love to listen to her tell the story. I just adore the story. Um, the one thing we know, and, I, and I'll, I'll close this chapter with this, is one thing our father said is, she said, your love is, 
is indestructible. It's eternal. Nothing can, we can't, nothing, we can't do anything for that love, you know. But he also said it's precarious. I love that word. It's precarious. We can screw it up in this, in this lifetime. Yeah. So we can't be casual with it. And so to know that you have, and of course, this is, this is everything, you know, it's eternal, but it's our choice in terms of how, of how we respond and how we choose moment by moment to live in with that intimacy and that truth and that, you know, creative collaborative power through all the things that we've got real lives with real people and real issues, you know, I don't want to call them issues, but real situations that are separating can be separating and, and, but we have what my father made clear, and I believe this is true in all human relationships, at least the ones that matter, let's say, is that she's, she's the key to my liberation. And even to the sense that she pushes my buttons and brings out what others would call the worst in me and vice, and, you know, reciprocated. We are, that is, that is our liberation. That is what she shows up exactly who needs who. I need her show up as for my greatest, for my greatest liberation. And I think when you, anyway, I'll stop with that. It looked like you want to get a word in. Yeah, that, that's really um, resonated for me. What does, when you say she pushes your buttons and vice versa, and it's, it's liberation and you're showing up as you need to be in that moment or whatever, what does that actually mean? What, what does that look like for you? Because that's something that I'm um, dealing with myself. So even though it's this great love, what you're saying is it's not without its issues, it's not without its arguments, or it's not without its, you know, demons right. or whatever. So sometimes, so I think Rudyard Clipling said, sometimes cigar is just a cigar. So sometimes, you know, I just, I just, okay, I'll give you an example. You know, I, so sometimes things are just, they're just life, you know, and there's no great spiritual meaning to it. But for, for me, Okay, when, when my default is when I feel unappreciated or, or mis, mistreated or whatever, I, she said, I go into my corner. I rush off into my corner and I lick my wounds. When she feels that way, she, gets, she, she responds with anger. Hmm. Deep wounds. Each of us have deep wounds that yeah. have created that. And so, so one, there's, there's the woundedness. It's bringing us in touch with our woundedness. And then, but the thing is, I can't stay in my corner because I don't want to be separate from her. And I know that I'm separating myself from, you know, from my, I, what happened, we have a connection and that when that connection is broken, life is very different. It doesn't mean we got to be lovey-dovey all the time. And sometimes we need space from each other, mm. but, but when we are actually, we can be connected without being connected. So the point is, is that because I have this tuning fork of our connectivity and because going to my corner breaks that, then it, you know, it, it, it brings up to me, okay, what do I need to do? What, what am I looking at? What is she, this woman that I know adores me and who I adore and wants nothing but the best for me. I want to wring her neck and I think she wants to wring mine, you know, <laughs> metaphorically speaking or physically, who knows, you know, never laid hands on each other, but you know what I'm saying? But so, so then that, has brought me out that has brought me out you know that has that in the same way with her is that you know the wounds that lead to the anger to that response of anger is she's i become so much more of a of an available man and she's become so much more of a loving woman 
you know, so I mean, I could get more into the details, but basically what happens is we, we prick each other's wounds. We love each other. We welcome them all I want, you know, and, and then it also enables us to see these wounds as the gateway to our liberation rather than being some horrible thing that we have to overcome. Mm. We start to see that as being a, you know, a great gift as well. And it requires, and it's funny, you know, just the work you and I both do. And it's funny, I was just talking to my stepdaughter about this on, um, that about her boyfriend is I said, you know, where, where is your reciprocal commitment? To whatever, wherever your reciprocal commitment is, that's the area with which you can work. This stuff starts to make sense. You know, how self-reflective are you willing to be? How much are you willing to take your own stuff on? How much are you willing to forego your hurt? You know, how much you're hurt for the greater, how much you committed to the truth, how much you committed to each other's evolution, how much, whatever that is, then this, then all these things that push the buttons become so many. And after a while, you just don't want to push the buttons anymore either. You know, but, but what's, what's, we've reached a state, I think a homeostasis where I'm still going to be a slob, you know, slovenly and it's going to drive her nuts. And I've done about as much as I can do. I can't discipline myself anymore to be that way. Hmm. It's things, you know, with Julie, there's, you get to a point where you kind of max out on your ability to just adjust and to make it. And then you start saying, oh, well, then I, I know that I'm the perfect person for who, you know, showing up in the perfect way for that. So I don't know if that answers your question. Could I ask you how this is showing up or, you know, whatever way you're comfortable talking about it, whether generally or specifically in your own life? Yeah. Yeah. So basically um, my current relationship, um, we were friends before we became partners, um, which was a couple of years ago, both in the same band together back in 1997. And we stayed friends and have done music on and off over the years. And then two years ago, who knew? Um, and it all changed. And it's in in the most in the most part, it's the best relationship I've ever had. And then there's this part where it's um, and you talk about pushing each other's buttons. We're very different, you know. He's a left brainer. I'm a right brainer. Um, I'm very spiritual. He's open to things, but he's nowhere near what we think, what we believe, right? Um, but he's he, he believes more now than he ever has done. But there are times where his shit from um, his childhood and all the rest of it, which still plays out now. And when you talked about feeling unacknowledged, um, that's exactly what pushes his buttons. And it's not even I don't even know that's happening, but it's how it's right. being interpreted. Right. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden this thing is like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, we're opposite to you. So I'm the one that will go off um and lick my wounds or whatever and he's the one that will blow up um but I, I can blow up with the best of them but um as okay. I've got as I've got older I don't that I don't want to be that you know I don't want to do that so yeah so I was really resonating with what you were saying there and and the reason why I struggle with it sometimes is because I don't know if you've ever got into Abraham Hicks or whatever it might be a bit basic for you but you know it's <laughs> that whole going downstream life is supposed to be good fun and easy and all the rest of it and when you're having these battles from time to time it makes you think shit am i should i not be doing this right right and that's beautiful and that you know and again everyone who's listening i want you to know what a what a 
what a gift you have to have someone like Mel that on her own podcast is just, you know, like, you know, she, she's talking, we used to say authenticity is talking from it, not about it. And you're talking from vulnerability and trust and not about it for it's the surrender path. And then, but not in the traditional way that we think of surrender. It's a different viewpoint on it is thinking that we know, we know best. Mm-hmm. that I know that life should be easy, that I know that I shouldn't be fighting with my fighting with Julie that I, you know, that all the, all the things that we think we know better and that, you know, I, I've, I, I, I trap my, I trap my clients because <laughs> they say, because they get to the point where they realize, Oh my God, they see their lives and everything that happened in their lives created this moment, right? Like this moment you and I are having everything created. It's perfect. If we had changed one little thing about it, it wouldn't be happening. Mm. Then where you get stuck, where you're trapped, you say, well, that means that everything happening in this moment is perfect for the 10-year moment when you and I are going to have our reunion you know, podcast or whatever. <laughs> they think, oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 but it's no, it can't be true because I'm not happy now or I'm, I'm at odds or I'm, I'm backsliding into whatever. And to the extent that life, you know, my father said, Trust Julie. Trust Julie. First, you'll learn to trust Julie. Then you'll learn to trust yourself. And the third phase is you'll learn to trust life. So it's the trusting part. And no one could do that for us. And life has to prove it. You know, you and I preaching it isn't going to change anything. No. It's just you see the perfection of all of this. And, you know, it, so it's, it's the trust issue. And then it's not making, this is, you know, it is one, it is fundamental, but so, you know, easy to say, hard to do is to not make yourself wrong for the experience that you're having, not make yourself wrong for the, whatever the experiences that you're having. And so do I, I don't use this as a license to be a a jerk. (laughs) Oh, I'm just being, you know, that's perfect. No, no, I, I don't want gratuitous suffering. I don't want gratuitous ego to egoism. I don't want any of that gratuitous. And at the same time, if, if I'd have gotten on this podcast and been super nervous instead of super relaxed, instead of saying, Oh my God, what are you doing? You know, you're 70 years old. You've done a thousand of these, but I, then I would just be having performance anxiety and hmm. let it go with that. Who knows why, but you can feel your own. Like you look at me and I almost guarantee you say, my God, this guy's had like the perfect journey. Right. But that's his, not me. Oh, no, no, that's, that's Dave. He's this big, you know, blah, 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 blah. But we discount ourselves. And Mel, I know you're on your own perfect journey. Yeah, I know you're on your own perfect journey. And I don't know what role your partner is going to play in your life. You know, it was interesting when Julie first came in, I played with, I said, you know, what if you're John the Baptist? <laughs> and they're just setting the table for something better to come. Then I realized that was just nonsense. That's just my spiritual bullshit. You know, that, no, no, she's Jesus. <laughs> she's the real deal, but you never know what role so many of the things that have happened in, in my life if people have been to John the Baptist and they've just created a table for, you know, or whatever, set the table for something better to come. I'm not saying that's true. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying hold space for all of it. And yeah, I don't know what more to say. Just don't make I would just say, please don't make yourself wrong. Don't, don't feel the times when you're fighting and you're, you just wish you never, you know, you find yourself saying to yourself, I wish I never met you, you know, whatever. Don't make, you don't make yourself, you don't indulge it, 
or you go with it and say, okay, you know, what is this opening up to me? But to be able to literally, and again, easy to say, hard to do, welcome every experience it has, including the moments of, of deep conflict. And if I could say one more thing on this, and I, 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 I realize this, that, you know, we all have ups and downs in our relationships. So when people tell me that, I say, yeah, that's true. I, I don't deny that. With my first wife, we had ups, but the baseline was the down. The baseline was the conflict, the incompatibility, the inconsistent worldviews. With Julie, the baseline is here. And I know these are just, these are the aberrations. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is finding what is the true baseline of the relationship in which we're going to have our ups and downs. And, and I would say, I, I feel so blessed um, because I know in the core of my being that our base, you know, our baseline is love and, and compatibility. And I, maybe it's being 70, maybe who knows what it is. I am just grateful every night. I can't believe I get to lay down next to this woman and I wake up in the morning and I can't believe this is what's next to me. And I can then go off and be an asshole or just, you know, whatever. But I know the core is this great appreciation. And, and I just want everyone who's listening to know that this is, I don't know how it shows up, but life wants, everyone has someone like, you know, some, whatever you want to call it, some intelligence, some force, some love agent that wants for you what my father wanted for me. And that our best role in allowing that to come into being is to stop denying ourselves that because we're not ready, we're not good enough, we still leave the toilet seat up. And once we stop pushing it away because we don't feel we're worthy of it, then that can start finding us. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's that sounds like a good <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Dave. Um we we are unbelievably yeah on the hour it's gone amazingly quick and you're absolutely right about your son um the sunshine i'm on about not his son um the way it just moved across the garden um so uh, there's loads more i'd love to ask you and and like we said we'll do another one um because another thing that sort of has has evaded me um most of my life on and off is is the financial abundance and yes. um it almost feels like i can have one or the other you know either the money or the love you know that seems to be how it's played out um so um yeah i'd love to know more about you know what makes you such a great so, businessman let, let me oh it doesn't mean that i haven't been humbled brought to my knees you know, you know that, that's just part of that I, I i for me i had to learn i had to come just put, I, I, we'll just push the pause button on But I don't, I don't want to hold myself out. I've made millions. I've lost millions. I've been in abundance where I didn't know what to do with myself. And I've had times where I wonder what, you know, I'm going to pay the credit card bill. So I've been all over the place. But but we're going to shatter that old paradigm. So here's a here's couple of things. So one, we let's get it. We'll, we'll get something in the books for Julie and I. Yeah. Two, after this is over, we'll talk. You and I just talk because I have some ideas. And three, I would just say one, I can't tell every, you know, everyone listening, what a gift you have here in this woman who let me ramble this way for an hour. And I mean this, I deal with, I know authenticity. I know it. And you're, I, I gotta tell you, you 
for what it's worth now, you are on the verge of an incredible quantum leap. I'm not just saying that I got nothing I want from you, but I mean, something is going to open up with you. And it's just like, you just got to pull one little pin out. The whole thing is going to collapse or explode. So you heard it here first. And, and I don't, you know, I, I don't pitch proselytize, promote three P words, but I would say that, you know, if, if anything we've said resonates with you, reach out to either one of us, whatever that is. And me, it's davegold.com. It's really easy. D-A-V-E-G-O-L-D.com. And, um, and no, you know, people know how to get a hold of you. Yeah. But let's let's put let's put a pin in this and let's you and I chat a little bit off. And thank you to you and every all of your listeners who created this field where you and I could have this beautiful communion. Mm, absolutely. Um, thank you, Dave. Is there anything you'd like to just finish off with? Any little, you know, pearls of wisdom? Yeah. The yes, I want. I want to just. I. You. Life can't give you anything. I, I quote this. It's on my signature line. It's some panache. I said, life cannot give you anything you're not willing to give yourself. And everything that you want begins with you stopping to deny yourself, stop making yourself wrong, stop trying to fix, heal, as he says, fix, change, heal, or improve yourself and start this journey to radical self-acceptance. And you'll be so amazed at what, at what starts to happen once you stop disqualifying yourself and sabotaging yourself. And I just want everyone to just start, let love find its way into your heart without you thinking you're not worthy because son of a bitch, you are. Brilliant. That's a wrap. Oh, thank you, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm almost gutted that um, it's taken so long, but you know what, everything in divine timing. And I think it's perfect. It's yeah, perfect. it's perfect. Exactly. Um, and I know the listeners will have loved this. So thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed that conversation or were inspired in any way, please, please leave me a review on iTunes. It's the best way for other people to find my podcast and be inspired themselves. Well, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And perhaps the story resonated with your own life or reminded you that perhaps you're also settling for second best. I've been helping people from a young age and realizing that there is more to life than what they are currently settling for. My desire is to give others the love to confidently and respectfully know their value so that they feel joy and are empowered to make a fulfilling difference. If that sounds good to you and you'd like to reach out and connect, you can find me at facebook.com forward slash Mel Clark Coaching, that's Clark with an E, or Instagram.com forward slash Mel Clark Coaching. Enjoy your day.